Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today we're serving up the good stuff with additional help. We've talked about the value of teamwork before, but we've got a couple of ringers on our team today. And they are as welcome as rangers coming to the muster of Rohan. Uh, West Hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm joined once again by the man of the West, the Aragorn to my Amer, Alan Sisto. Thanks, Sean. Folks, we are thrilled today to be welcoming to the podcast Dr. Dimitra Femi and Dr. Andrew Higgins, the editors of the new edition of Tolkien's A Secret Vice that was published earlier this year. It's Tolkien's essay on language invention, and it's been published with a lot of new material. And I think I speak for both of us when I say we are mm-hmm. extremely excited to have them here. Oh, absolutely. Um, I could certainly go on and on. You know I'm capable of that, Alan, but I'd rather just More. jump right into the discussion and welcome them. <laughs> okay, then. Well, let's officially welcome them both to the podcast. Hello, doctors. Hello. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having us. Good to have you. Well, we Suliyah, thank you for being here. here. <laughs> thank you so much. We definitely have some questions for you, uh, but we wanted to start with just having you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. As Frodo asked Tom Bombadil, who are you, Master? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm Dr. Dimitra Femi. I'm a senior lecturer in English at Cardiff Metropolitan University in Wales. Uh, I've been, uh, I'm, a, I'm a specialist on Tolkien and fantasy literature. My first book um, on Tolkien was published with uh, Palgrave Macmillan in 2008, Tolkien, Race and Cultural History, From Fairies to Hobbits. Uh, it won the uh, Mythopoeic um, Society Award for Inking Studies. Uh, and since then, I've been working on um, a number of uh, journal articles, essays in edited collections, uh, reference work entries, book reviews, you know, the lot, the usual that academics do, I suppose. Uh, wow. But uh, yeah, the, the second book is is the one I, we've just finished with, Andrew. And um, well, well, we'll go into that in a minute. But mm-hmm. I've just so finished working on a second monograph, uh, which um, is on Celtic myth in contemporary children's fantasy, which is uh, sort of branching off uh, to uh, more modern uh, fantasy for children, uh, apart from Tolkien. I also teach on medievalism, children's literature, science fiction, folklore and myth in literature. Um, I think that's about it, actually. Do you ever sleep? (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. Uh, and I, I do the occasional um, newspaper review on BBC Radio Wales and a few bits and pieces with the BBC every now and then. Wow. That's great. Well, well it sounds you've like you've got some big shoes to follow to... there. Uh, <laughs> Andy, if, if you want to. Yeah, I'm Dr. Andrew Higgins, and this is going to sound very strange, but I am a director of fundraising at Glyndebourne Opera, which is an opera company in Sussex. That's my professional job. Um, but I love Tolkien. My dad read me The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings when I was about six, my brother and I. And I grew up kind of patterning my academic life on Tolkien. I taught myself Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse and Gothic and and currently trying to teach myself Finnish. Um, wow. That's yeah. great. Um, and when I moved here um, from the United States to England about 16 years ago, I started keeping a blog about Tolkien and just some research I was doing. Um, the area that really interests me, of course, and, and this will tie into the book, of course, is Tolkien's languages. Mm-hmm. And around that time, I was very lucky, very blessed to actually meet Dr. Dimitra Femi at, at a conference and she was about to teach some online courses on Tolkien, and I took her incredibly brilliant uh, course on Tolkien and then one on fantasy literature before and after Tolkien. And in the course of that kind of uh, those classes, Demetrius said to me one day, why don't you do some serious research and do a thesis on Tolkien? Uh-huh. And I went, 
Wow. Right. Okay. Well, I've got a day job and um, and I fundraise <laughs> for opera. But I thought about it and I and I got very interested in looking at a, a particularly early period of Tolkien's kind of creativity, that earliest period, the Book of Lost Tales mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, you know, the talk about the uh, the the wine of blessedness. I got to meet mm-hmm. Trefimi to be my PhD supervisor, <laughs> and I spent three wow. and a half years doing this thesis, the genesis of Tolkien's mythology. which I am about to embark on um, reformatting and restructuring and, as the book I just read said, taking all the academic apparatus out and turning it into a monograph, hopefully, for publishing. Oh, excellent. That sounds great. Yeah. And and Demetra really was my guiding force, and she got me involved with giving papers at Tolkien conferences. Um, And that's when when I was doing the research for the thesis that we discovered some interesting things that we'll talk about in a minute at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And we hatched a plan to put this book together <laughs> and sell it to HarperCollins and to the Tolkien estate. And I remember sitting there thinking with Dimitri, can we really do this? Is this really, could we really do this? And here it is. The book's been published. Um, and this has spurred me on to do more work on Tolkien. And what I've become very interested in the last year or so is not only Tolkien's invented language, but all invented languages for fiction. Mm -hmm. And I recently taught an online course called Invented Languages Through Tolkien, um, and I'm doing more work on that now. So yes, I'm very lucky because I get to do my two passions. I get to work all day and fundraise, um, raise money for opera, which is brilliant because it Mm -hmm. needs it. And I also get to work on Tolkien, which is my other passion. So I'm a very lucky. (laughs) That is a good thing to be able to do what you love. No doubt yep, about that. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Andy, you uh, kind of answered this question already then, so I'm just going to direct this one to uh, to you, Demetra. When when did you first discover Tolkien? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I'm originally from Greece. I don't know if people can tell from my accent. I, I'm, I'm told that my accent nowadays is something in between Greek and Welsh, so I don't know <laughs> how I'm coming across to a mainly U.S. audience, I would think. But um, I grew up in Greece with uh, with uh, classical mythology, as you'd expect, and, you know, those sorts of texts and, you know, in a small island with uh, very much living folklore going on around me. Uh, and I think when I when I first encountered Tolkien, I was a, a student of English at the University of Athens. And it just I just couldn't get over how one man creates something that usually a culture creates, you know, an entire culture mm. creates cosmopolitan mm-hmm. and fairy tales and legends and all of his very multi-layered sort of body of work. And that's what started, you know, my first sort of research questions that then led into my own PhD and then um, the rest of my research. Wow. I was lucky enough to read Tolkien straight away in English, which I think um, mm-hmm. is, is quite important. Um, <laughs> Got to be the as, best as way, right? English, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's it's more difficult when you start with translations. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Cer- and it's, certainly something would get would get lost in translation along the way. There's quite such a, a command of, of English. Quite, quite yeah. a bit of some things, I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and as you could probably hear from my accent, although I live in the UK, I'm obviously not from here, as they like to remind me around here where I work. I am. I was born in the Bronx, New York, actually. So I come from right. New York. That, that did sound a little. Yeah. I, I speak thought, well, yeah. with the Bronx accent, basically. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, Sean, I, I think well, they, they the kind of took your. Yeah, I was going to say they uh, they kind of took that next question, but maybe not. Uh, go ahead. Well, I think uh, yeah, we we did have a question here as to whether uh, you how how you approached or how you came uh, into the field of Tolkien scholarship, whether you started um, academic as an academic uh, and then sort of 
picked up an interest in Tolkien and sort of it led you to that field. Um, and I think I kind of heard uh, a little bit of an answer from both of you. It sounds like, Demetra, um, you you were actually, uh, you know, uh, studying for academia when you uh, first encountered Tolkien, whereas Andy, it sounds like uh, for you, it was sort of the opposite. It was your interest in Tolkien that um, that brought you into this um, this sort of scholarship. Um, is that yeah. sort of accurate? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, sort sort of, I suppose. For me, it it um, I w- I was never taught Tolkien within my studies. It was something that I sort of discovered and started digging into myself. Um, but but the, the point by the point I'd finished my degree, I knew I wanted to do more on Tolkien, and this is why I picked the masters that I picked, and then I ended up doing the PhD that I did. So it was quite linear, in a way. Um, yeah, I think Andy, Andy, well, he'll tell you himself, but he'd already had a degree which in, in more or less related areas, I think. It's more about coming okay. back to academia, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, no, I mean, I, I had a degree in classics um, already. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and so for me, that, but again, classics was kind of what I did academically. And then on the side, I continued to do stuff like Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse and, you know, Gothic and taught myself mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then Tolkien was Tolkien was always there in my life. You know, that's the thing. I mean, like I said, my dad, my dad was a member of the original New York Tolkien Society. He knew people like uh, the guy who ran it. I can't remember his name, but Dick Plotz. So we growing up, I had all the old Tolkien um, journals in the house with all these old articles in it about the fourth age and the ice age and all these magazines with tengwar all over and everything so it was always around my house yeah and then i just i fell in love with the whole mythology and and everything and again what what also interests me was the kind of the academic background of tolkien how he used Mm -hmm. all of his education and academics and kind of put it into this this secondary world um but then like i said it was only when i started taking courses with demetra that she really guided me and said look why don't you do some serious research here and stop oh. doing just blogs, but do something mm-hmm. that might actually contribute to Tolkien studies. Well, I um, could see good material that. there, as you can see. <laughs> 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 I can see straight away, shall we say. <laughs> you, you sensed something there that needed to be sort of uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, brought to the yeah. forefront. Yeah, definitely. That's great. <laughs> Thank great. you. Well, I guess we'll start now with some questions about the book itself. We, we really mm-hmm. hope that uh, our listeners, we, we did warn them in our last episode that we were going to have you on, but we only gave a week's notice, so they, they might not have been able to read mm-hmm. through the whole thing. But uh, um, A Secret Vice, the essay itself, uh, had, of course, been previously published in the Monsters and Critics and uh, other essays. But, mm-hmm. uh, Demetra, on your blog, you talked about how you restored some parts that were omitted from the original, uh, and then you were also able to publish a new essay along with his manuscript notes. What was the yeah. biggest revelation or surprise that you uncovered? Mm-hmm. I don't know where to start with that question. <laughs> 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 I think, I mean, if I was looking back through my sort of research diary, which isn't as detailed as it should have been, but I think every every couple of weeks there was a big surprise, actually, as far as I remember the process. Um but, but for me, the main thing that sort of drew me, and it was the original surprise that got me into thinking about the entire uh, book idea, was that new essay, the essay on, on phonetic symbolism. That was mm. sort of my baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I discovered that when I was doing my PhD back back in the day, a long time ago. Um, and um, I had really tried very hard to transcribe it. But, um, you know, for, for those 
people out there who've uh, worked with Tolkien's um, handwriting. <laughs> that says a lot, right? There. I've only seen samples, but yeah. 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 I mean, it, it starts always beautifully, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is brilliant. And then by the third page, um, you just want to bang your head off the wall and you don't know what you're doing anymore. So, you know, by, by, by the only way to transcribe, of course, is to go there physically to Oxford, to the Bodley and, and do the work. So, you know, bit yeah. by bit of many, many years, I, I was slowly transcribing it. But it, it was tough. It was really, really tough. Uh, but I knew there was something important there, something important about Tolkien's linguistic ideas. It was, you know, the phenomenon he's talking about in that essay, phonetic symbolism, is very, very, um, well, not quite obscure, but not very much accepted now. They're very um, um, controversial, I suppose is the word. Yeah. Um, so for me, that was important to get that out there. I did refer to it in my book, and I did ask for permission to... Um, reproduce it there but I was told no which um yeah. I think I think was a good decision because it, it's in a much better place now so the Tolkien estate you know I wasn't in, I was in touch with them about that particular bit but then Andrew made his little discovery well yes. not very little actually quite a big one and then that's where we both thought this is this has to get out there it's not it's got to be a book now Definitely. And well, that discovery, and I can. I was thinking back as you were talking, and I can still remember the day I made that discovery. And I was working on my thesis, and actually, it was the day that Dimitri was with me, showing me how to work with Tolkien's manuscripts. So, you got to imagine you you call up these manuscripts, and they come in these big gray boxes, and you open up the box, and there are these folders, and inside each folder is each page in Tolkien's handwriting. So this is the actual pages. <laughs> wow. So the first thing you have to do um, is make sure you don't scream out like a fanboy and go, oh, my <laughs> right, God. right, exactly. That would be me. <laughs> yeah. First five minutes of every study day is just swooning over them. And the secret vice, wow. the actual talk itself is a series of, kind of a, a Tolkien uses thing called Oxford paper, which mm -hmm. are these kind of bound booklets that we use for examinations. And so you kind of we were paging through these pages and it was the talk and they looked like the talk that had been published by Christopher. So no real surprise there. Right. And then in the middle of these of this folio, there were these two sheets of paper where Tolkien had written his notes to this language called Funwegian that we eventually uh, deciphered yes. being Funwegian. Mm -hmm. Right. With this grammatical structure and these words that were written in, in pencil in very light pencil on the thing. And I kept looking at them and looking at them and thinking, what is this? This is not in the published talk. And I remember looking at Demetra and Demetra looking at me and going, what is this? And we realized we had discovered these pages that had a language on it that someone had invented at this point. Um, and later on, what became even more exciting is when we actually found the minutes to the meeting that, that took place when Tolkien gave the gave the talk in, in 1931, mm -hmm. it mentioned the Funwegian language. So we were just uh -huh. we were like, oh my God, this was the language he mentioned in the talk that never got put into the wow. into the wow into the published essay. <laughs> yeah, and wow, so this amazing. just blew my mind. You know, this was like, oh my God, this is a language that Tolkien invented that no one's ever seen before, basically. And then right. it took. Then there was the job of transcribing all of it, which was quite <laughs> tricky. Yeah, that sounds like it's uh, a pretty difficult job transcribing anything yeah. that he wrote at length. Yeah. My goodness. And so you have to be very cool about this and sit at this desk at the Bodleian and try, you know, and be all academic and things right. like that. And meanwhile, you're sitting there going, 
Oh my God. <laughs> All you want to do is take a picture of it and put it on Facebook and go, look what I found. Look yeah. what I found. Look what, I found. Look what I'm doing exactly. today. Exactly. And of course, Not you, loud. Know, <laughs> you can't even photograph a private use, no. you know? No, no. So you have to going back. And it, that's, that's part of the difficulty until, until you know, we got the. Uh, the permission, and then we were allowed to take uh, copies and work at home, which actually, of course, sped up the process immensely. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes. significant improvement. Yeah, I think we were camping out at the Bodleian for like weekends on weekends, basically. <laughs> so we get in there, and the time, if it's not during term time, the time is very limited and everything. So you get in there, and you have your whole process set up to get in there, get the folio, get the thing transcribed, don't eat. I remember when I used to go up don't when I was eat. doing my thesis. I used to shove candy bars in my pocket so I can go to the bathroom and have a quick candy bar and then go right back there. Uh, get that blood sugar fix back up there. Exactly. That's, that's the breakfast for any Tolkien fan. <laughs> there you go. Right. Should have brought Lemboss, but there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. There we right. go. The thing is, even with even when when we got to work with the copies at home, it was fine with those pages that were in ink. Mm. Uh, when it came to the pages pencil. in in pencil, especially oh. those pages in pencil that wasn't even sharpened properly, oh. it was quite <laughs> blaring every letter blaring into each other. Of course, we had to make more trips to the Bodleian just to look under a huge uh, magnifying glass with a lot of light and really work through those pencil wow. pages. Too. Mm -hmm. Not not that wow. many of them, but you know, a good number to take a, a good few extra trips to Bodleian. My goodness. And there, was, wow. there were some cases where we would spend all morning looking at a certain word. I remember both of us would be peering over it, looking, looking, looking. It wasn't any making any sense. Then we went and got some lunch. We came back. We both looked at it again, and we went, Merry Messenger. Of course. Ah. It's Mary Messenger. Mary Messenger, yeah, that was a that was a, a big one. It was written. It was written sort of all meshed into each other, and um, yeah, it, wow. it was just it, you just sit there and you you think, and suddenly something clicks, you know. Yeah. Mm, it it somehow you, your brain sort of switches on, or you know you start making making um. Uh, connections, and I think the other thing is you start getting used to certain little um um idiomatic uses of handwriting of Tolkien. Mm. So you mm -hmm. start realizing that that little squiggle, that's what that is. You know, I've seen that before and, and it starts sort of making sense. So you start to develop kind of a literacy for reading Tolkien's handwriting. Yes, yes mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And his shorthand, basically, because mm -hmm. he used little shorthands with words like the and of and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So you start to okay. see how he's using that. Yeah, that's great. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, for all your efforts, it seems like the perfect time for a new uh, standalone publication of A Secret Vice. Um, you know, I, I noticed in the book you cited um, some of the work of uh, just some of the other language inventors that are out there now. You you mentioned mm -hmm. people like David Sallow and David Peterson. Um, of course, you know, uh, Sallow did the work on Peter Jackson's uh, Middle Earth movies. And then, you know, Peterson has done work on shows like Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, with the with the environment being what it seems to be for invented languages, uh, do you feel uh, like there's been a strong sort of mainstream or casual fan reaction to this publication? Do you feel like there's a wider audience there than maybe there would have been a few years ago? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we would have. I don't think we, the, the book would have had a chance without that, to be honest with you. I think there is a revival. Mm -hmm for um, not just invented languages, but fictional languages specifically. So languages mm -hmm. invented for world building, for fiction, uh, mm -hmm. rather than the utilitarian sort of reasons of using it. Mm -hmm. 
so yes, I think we were just, you know, up, we were just uh, proposing this at the right time. And of course, you know, we did do our research and we did we did um, think about, you know, what sort of audiences that would um, appeal to, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's, you know, there's this concept now of world building, and there's a great book yeah. by Mark J. Wolf mm -hmm. about, you know, world building. And I think language invention as a key component of world building in these kind of transmedial franchises like Star Trek and Star Wars mm -hmm. and Game of Thrones mm -hmm. it, and is becoming a really important thing and more and more people are getting interested in that. So I think that it's hitting at that time as well. And, you know, David Peterson's new book, The Art of Language Invention, for example, really shows all the different languages he's invented mm -hmm. for shows like the defiance and 100 and right. so yeah i think it's really taken i see more and more articles online and things like yeah. that about conlangs and art mm -hmm. langs i myself am a bit of a conlanger oh and i'm great. trying to work on one but boy i gotta tell you it's it's another job completely I mean, I don't <laughs> yeah know. you already have two I, you know, <laughs> right. trying to figure out what the subjunctive tense should be for this verb case you know it's like three hours of my life basically so <laughs> what, what was the anecdote anecdote from tolkien i think i'll use a prefix for the subjunctive or something oh, yeah. like that yeah <laughs> I, I think i should I, it's it's who he he said yeah, he was that he, in 1915 he heard a little man had somebody uh, somebody we're not quite sure who or if he even existed um we <laughs> said i shall express the accusative with a think, prefix okay. yes okay so he's talking about the accusative case all right yeah, yeah. that's great <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's funny i was actually uh reading peterson's book when i heard about your book coming out so i thought oh well this will be the perfect thing to read after finishing peterson's oh, yeah. book so. yeah I think I think this notion of world building is quite important because in literary studies, at least, um, we've been preoccupied with narratives, really narratives, characters, plot lines, sources, that sort of thing. And to suddenly sort of turn everything around on its head and look at this, what we, we traditionally think of as the setting. OK, it's just the setting. It's just, you know, the place where you set the story and suddenly think about the setting as the main um, subject of research yeah. is quite refreshing. You know, it mm -hmm. reveals a lot of new things. And it, it for me, it's a sort of shift really in terms of how we look at uh, particular genres like fantasy, like science fiction, like uh, uh, media genres as well. Digital narratives. Yeah. too. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world is itself a, the, the almost the primary character if you look at the legendarium <laughs> as a whole. You know, and, and people who read the whole thing as opposed to folks who just maybe dabbled in it certainly sense that. And the yeah. language creation plays a big role in that, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Well, there's. Yeah. And it uh, also allows us. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, I was going to say it also allows us to go back and look at some older texts and kind of see how invented language is working in those. Like you look at something like Gulliver's Travels, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm and how he was using invented language to world build, or Thomas More's Utopia, or Edward Bullier-Lytton's The Coming Race. You know, these all have these examples of authors inventing words, phrases, even grammar, when you get to things like Bullier-Lytton, mm -hmm. um, as, as, as one of those components of world building. So they're not just these, why are these authors doing this? Well, this gives us a context for why they're mm -hmm. doing it. Right. It's part of the fabric of building a world. Yeah. Right. It really is. There was a quote, uh, see if I can find it now, actually, in, in uh, A Secret Vice that kind of speaks to that. He talks about um, uh, that the converse indeed is true. Your language construction will breed a mythology. Uh, really, you know, a, a sound point that as you do this, it's going to create, uh, you know, the, the, the mythology that you need in which to set your story. 
Um, yeah. And that's yeah. what I mean, you've done so amazingly well. Can't exist, in, can't exist in a void. You know, right. languages exist in cultures. They exist, uh, you know, in terms of uh, social constructions. Right. Uh, and they are shaped by those things as well. So, yes, you will need, mm-hmm. you know, if your language is going to develop and to become, you know, something alive, you need speakers. You yeah. know, you need people. Exactly. <laughs> people must speak it. it. It's sort of it's like totally- this. Characteristics that he identified, right? The and one of them, uh, there's the four key characteristics, and one of them was actually the illusion of historicity um, mm-hmm. that comes in when they when you when you intertwine it with myth. I think I'm paraphrasing there, but yeah, and you also see in the 1930s how those two things really combine together as Tolkien expands his Elvish history and things mm-hmm. like the Quenta. He's also expanding his Tree of Tongues as well so you get these different dialects of elvish so by the time of the etymologies in in 1938 you have over 11 different dialects of elvish because he's expanding <laughs> the kind of the different elf the different race of elves so yeah. the two are kind of as he said co co-evolve you yeah. know they, they 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 are intertwined together mm-hmm. well there's a ton of great material in the book uh, even even for casual audiences and i'm going to side with them a little bit here compared to sean who's <laughs> Probably get that. If I've got a bachelor's in word nerdism, his is a PhD. Uh, so he, you know, would be, um, but uh, for for casual audiences who maybe aren't as familiar with the the linguistic side, uh, there's the poem about Arendil that's both in English and in early Quenya. Uh, there's the the wonderful poem, the Last Ark. Uh, what mm. advice do you have for somebody approaching this book who maybe doesn't have uh, that much of a background or familiarity with linguistics? Well, start from the introduction. <laughs> start from the introduction. We really tried hard. We really tried hard to write an introduction that would speak to both both audiences. Really, there because mm-hmm. we do have a, a, a long sort of overview of where Tolkien started, how the languages developed, why they developed the way they did, uh, how they branched out, and sort of present this very complex, very very complex construction as clearly as possible with a lot of examples, mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of. Um, yeah, very specific examples, actually, mm-hmm. that actually chime with the works that most people will know, like The Lord of the Rings. So try to make links there with with, uh, with wider known texts. Um, and then, you know, um, again, we tried it very hard with the, with the notes to explain things that were very, very complicated or give terminology that, you know, Tolkien mm-hmm. takes for granted. You know, he's a linguist. That's what he does. Of course, he's a philologist. <laughs> uh, but clearly some of it. You know, the, the average reader won't know, and actually, some of it is obsolete now. It's been it's been replaced with other terminology. So, True. you know, we've done our best there to, to sort of support both both um, um, categories of readers. I, I would agree. Oh, actually, nice. being that casual reader, I found the introduction itself extraordinarily helpful, and the notes were a great way to help. Get, uh, they answered questions that, as I was reading it, I would come up with a question, and there's the note, and it would answer it. So um, mm-hmm. I really? definitely second that. So anybody who's, you know, considering reading this, uh, don't be put off by the fact that it's, you know, slightly academic in nature. Um, you know, go into it, read the introduction, like she says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, start I from think, the beginning. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of the talk is that Tolkien was giving it as a talk rather yes. than as a written yes. sort of academic right. paper, which means that there's humor there. Uh, you know, there's sort of. Um, 
uh, yeah, but, I mean, he knows the audience quite well. It was True. their students at his college. There are little sort of asides about his colleagues. You know, there is quite a bit of lighthearted material there. And a lot of autobiography, you know, he talks about his own sort of experience as a child. So it, it's, uh, it starts quite nicely and, and sort of, you know, at a good pace before it gets mm-hmm. you to the more technical things. Yeah. I would, say with the, I, would, I would say with the poems, too, I mean, if, if someone's interested in just <clears throat> looking at Tolkien's language and, you know, he was very much into this. You don't necessarily have to know the meanings of the words because there's that sound sense to yeah. them. So mm-hmm, you look right. at something like the last arc, just read it through. And then you've got the English to kind of see how the words get put together and stuff like that. And then I'll start to give you an idea of how Tolkien's language has worked, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful experience, even if you don't know quite what the words mean. It is. Mm. You talk about the, that uh, aesthetic nature to it. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I tried yeah. to read it out loud before I read the English version just so I can kind of hear those words. And it, it is. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to read. Mm-hmm. It is. Reading aloud does, does pay off, really, with these particular texts. It really does. Yeah. because. And, yeah. and we have very few instances of Tolkien himself sort of reading these languages. So sometimes you're sort of wondering, how should I pronounce this? But still, you get a good flavor for what he was mm-hmm. going for. <clears throat> Definitely. Well, you guys have been great about actually going back to Tolkien's recordings and checking pronunciation. I, I, I really admired that. That was uh, that we, was fun. We, we had the I have the J.R.R. Tolkien audio collection, which has um, I think the only ones we've referenced so far are Christopher Tolkien's pronunciations because he's the only yeah. one who reads part of the Silmarillion in those. But mm-hmm. uh, we're definitely going to include those when we get to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. I can't wait uh, mm-hmm. to include, you know, little bits and pieces, of course, enough to stay within fair use doctrine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are all very, uh, very zealous about protecting intellectual property here. But um, it is it is it's amazing right. to hear there, his voice to hear the professor's voice or even hear Christopher's voice. It's and I, I love yeah, Christopher's it's... reading of tuna. Yes, mm-hmm. reading really upon tuna. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Much better and, than and, the... and we've certainly had quite a bit of fun with that particular <laughs> with word tuna. Yes, we have. <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> tuna on rye. Tuna yeah. on yeah. tuna. Tyrion yeah. upon tuna upon, upon rye. rye. <laughs> well. Well, you know, one thing I find uh, that that seems to come up again and again um, is this idea of the coherence and the consistency of Tolkien's world that his language creation is sort of facilitated. And uh, mm-hmm. I know that Tolkien himself used this term uh, in one of his letters, um, sort of uh, kind of lamenting the fact, maybe a little bit, that uh, writers like Swift hadn't quite achieved it, um, but that he sort of had because of uh, the, you know, because of this background of uh, of these these fully not quite fully fleshed out languages, but these, you know, these, these ideal languages that he had created. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine what Tolkien's legendarium would have been without this linguistic invention. But I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you feel like there would even be a legendarium for us to talk about? Um, you know, we've kind of talked about the fact that the, the language sort of did, um, did sort of come first, didn't it? And the myth sort of followed from that. But I think they, be, you know, they, as we talk about in the book, they became very closely bound together. And I, I don't mm-hmm. know, I think the way Tolkien thought, you know, he, as his, his obituary said, he lived inside language. I think mm. even in the early materials, it would be very weird if there hadn't been some elements of language in that, I think. Um, I, to me, I suspect. You, I, I've, 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 you know, I've sort of pondered about this for a while. And that there is a sort of chunk of my first book that's that's. Um, um, you know, trying to explore this idea, and 
for me, these things sort of possibly grew as separate interests, but came together very, very quickly. So yeah. it's very difficult to separate them in his in his creation. So even when he he's imitating um, other writers, you know, his very early writings, he's already creating words there. But at the same time, we know that he's, his mother taught him many languages. He always thought of language as something not quite just utilitarian, you know, there was mm-hmm. something beyond beyond that and the way he talks about language as music i think is is quite mm-hmm. important that he thinks about the you know the the, the human um uh, um uh the human sort of uh, um, mouth and cavity from where all of those sort of sounds come as an instrument mm-hmm. as a musical instrument um and i think you know that there's something um artistic about the creation of language that he had he hadn't you know he had there right from the beginning Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at one of his earliest uh, attempts at adaptation, the Kulervo, you know, story, mm-hmm. which just was published with right. HarperCollins, right. edited by Verlin Flieger, even there in his adaptive process, one of the first things he does is he makes up names or alternative names for the characters coming from the Kalevala. So even in, we're talking October 1914, he's still equating that idea of adapting a story with inventing names which mm-hmm. is the first step towards language. So I think it, it, it became meshed. And I even go back earlier to when he asked his mother about the green gray dragon. You know, yeah, one was, of my favorite lines. You know, yeah. There, yeah. Yeah. There was a language element to that story he, he was thinking about. So, yeah. yeah. The fact that, you know, he, this was a period, and I think we, we sort of forget that at times, that this was a period where playing around with language was not unusual. You know, it's this time where um, uh, international auxiliary auxiliary languages like Mm -hmm. Esperanto, like Edo, like Volapuk are, you know, the the big thing of the day. You know, they sort of collapsed after the war. That's the thing. And nobody sort of talked about them in the same way ever again. But Mm -hmm. at the time, in his formative years, these are quite important things, you know, culturally quite um quite um important and and well known and we know that he you know he learned esperanto as a very young boy and he played around with it and tried to invent his own words based on it and you know use them for his own sort of scout code so -hmm. these are very early years where language invention is you know is a legitimate sort of um activity to to take part in it's not something weird that only weird people do which is how (laughs) it was viewed after you know after the war i think you know after this whole that's a very good point optimism about sort of uniting the world the world under common language had sort of died away as a, as a dream because Certainly. you know the world had changed right mm-hmm. and in fiction too i mean you, you have several authors who come in kind of come out of that new romancer movement that um, michael saylor talks about in his book as if this idea that there was this kind of movement to re-enchant modernity by putting into fictional texts some real kind of scientific elements like maps, like, you know, the Shard of Amantis and Haggard's um, uh, She. And also, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you had Edgar Rice Burroughs in his, his um, John Carter of Mars series actually create a language called Barsoomian, you know, that was put in there in about 1920 or so. So, again, that idea of invented language and literature was out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot more common than than, it might, than a lot of readers today might think. That's true. And so Tolkien really sort of brought together both the real world invented languages and the fictional invented languages. And I, and I think what he added to that was his interest in this idea about language development and the structure of language. Because, right. again, for Tolkien, it wasn't so much the end product of creating a language. 
It was the structure of language and seeing how language change and fluctuate mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. And that's what his entire work on his languages throughout his legendarium, I think, was about, was this idea of how does yeah. language grow and change? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you encounter a new race, how does that change the language? And so we don't have one version of Quenya or Sindarin. Right. You know, we have many versions right. of Quenya and Sindarin. That makes sense. And that that also reflects uh, it reflects other changes as well, doesn't it? You know, there's this political things that happen because of the way the languages change, mm -hmm. uh, their whole reconceptions of the legendarium. You know, the 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 Sindarin language. You know, its whole role changed. So, um, you know, I'm right. thinking about that masterful essay, that late essay, The Shibboleth of Ferno, mm -hmm. which is all about how a particular, you know, sound change <laughs> became a political issue, you know, a really, really important political issue. Mm -hmm. So he's quite aware of the, what we'd call, I suppose, today sociolinguistics, you know, the, the, the cultural, social mm. uh, constructions around, you know, how language works. And I know you guys are not fans of Feanor, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, we're not defenders that, of it, that that's for true. sure. That is true. <laughs> and um, we have attempted to crack the shibboleth once or twice, I think. We, well, yeah, we we broached it, but only to talk about the, um, I think, the Amalese of uh, Feanor's sons. The names, to, right. The names, right. The, the mother yes. names of his uh, seven sons. Arinde and, yeah, all yeah. that, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll get into the thorn in a, in a future episode. I'm sure we will eventually. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that, that intrigued me a little bit was the fact that it, uh, well, it ended up giving given twice, but specifically the first time he gave it, uh, you know, you were able to identify the date and place where this was presented at the Johnson Society at Pembroke College in Oxford in November of 1931. What does that tell us about the audience and maybe the context of this, uh, of the paper or of the, the essay or the, um, the talk? That we didn't know before. Well, close to me to show you first. Talk a little bit. Shall we talk a little bit about the search for the for the uh, for those minutes? Oh yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, we should. I think we should. I mean, we 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 had we'd looked through everything we you know we could have looked at that point. We'd sort of given up hope. I think after after a particular. Yeah you know, uh, um, point, we thought that's it, you know, we've looked at everything, there's no way, you know, probably if you never gave it, you know, we, we were really, really getting uh, disheartened about it. And um, it was, it was just keep on going really <laughs> mode and, and looking at every possible uh, venue. Uh, there was no sort of widely known association of Tolkien and the Johnson Society until that point. But, you know, if you think about it, it was his new college, you know, he just about, you know, had gotten established there. Um, the Johnson Society was the main sort of society of that particular college. And and it would have made sense that, you know, he would have been invited there. And mm -hmm. I don't know, there's something about the Johnson element there as well. And, you know, that particular period, the early modern period and, and invented languages, there's something about that, you know, that I think is is important. You know, all sorts of texts like um, Jonathan Swift's, et cetera, happen around that time. Um, but um, what what it shows, I think, is um, the the sort of wide interest of 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 um, um, research that he was willing to share with people. Mm. For me, that was quite important. That you know, you go out there to a to a you know quite small audience of students and colleagues, and you unveil something that you are you know quite apprehensive about, um, a little bit worried about, but at the same time you really want to talk about it. You know, it, it's half of your life. When you're passionate, so actually, you want to tell people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. But at the same time, it is a nice, safe place to do it. You know, it's your True. own college, you're, you know, in a position 
you know of, of respect in terms of you know your audience looking at you um and i don't know i don't know whether you know um all of this all of these notes um in the in the last part of the book you know the the, the bits and pieces on note papers about um james joyce and gertrude stein which for me that was another huge surprise and i never expected mm-hmm. to see gertrude stein mentioned <laughs> by talking uh, whether you know these notes came out, out of the discussion because clearly a discussion did follow after his paper and the students didn't did bring up um you know those sorts of names so had he thought about this before did he suddenly you know start thinking about them after this i don't know but clearly other you know th- this audience also um widened the the, the debate or the discussion mm. about that, I, mm-hmm. I also wonder what it must have been like for these students to hear that a professor was giving a talk called a secret vice that might have gotten the room full a bit, a bit. i don't know <laughs> i bet yeah you know um sean i hope you'll forgive me i'm gonna jump ahead and then you can fill back in but there's a question that i think now is more of a follow-up to that uh, because he talked about uh, uh, the the kind of the dismissive comments that he made about mm-hmm. his thing, and he talked about how he was, um, uh, you know, at least here he was safe, but he really wanted to talk about it. So I want to jump forward to a question that I had for later. But um, one of the striking things about this is how frequently he's very, I don't know, tentative, dismissive um, in regards to this mm-hmm. in regards to this hobby. He calls it absurd. Mm-hmm. He even calls it idiotic at one point. I think in reference to Nevbosch specifically. Uh, unremunerative, oh, one of my so favorite good. words. For goodness sake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and even talking about saying uh, whether practitioners are quite right in their heads. Is, in their heads. Is, is this, um, you know, kind of his, his classic dry sense of humor, kind of self-deprecating that, that we see maybe in some of the biographical material? Or do you think he was genuinely uh, a little embarrassed by this hobby? Well, that's mm-hmm. a difficult question to answer, isn't it? That's yeah, uh, speculation. I know. I'm not, <laughs> you don't have an answer to, to that one. Even yeah, to and, his, and, um, and even we better to his, sort of accept that straight away that you know we are sort of speculating here, but yeah. Even to his even to his then girlfriend at the time, Edith, he calls yeah. it his not. He calls it my nonsense fairy language. You know. So even to mm-hmm. his a yeah. very close person, he's saying that uh, it's it's a tricky one. I don't know. Was he was he kind of hedging his bets a bit a bit and you know doing that. I mean, he says, I mean, he even says absurd in that famous Milton Woman letter, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I had, I, I had a desire to make a, a connected legend art. And then at the end, he says absurd. So right. I, it's, it's, a, you can't get in Tolkien's head, unfortunately. That's mm-hmm. true. That's the I one where he talks he about his crest has since fallen, right? Is that the, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I think there was this tendency to sort of, um, speak derogatorily about, um, the creative side of his life especially in a context where he's supposed to be a serious academic and so publishing academic stuff and uh i think there was a genuine worry there about the time he was devoting to this hobby you know to yeah. this sort of, <laughs> that's you know, true fact that was sort yeah. of as as andy said it sort of takes over your life you know creating a language is a huge mm-hmm. undertaking mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is an element of that, especially addressing a university audience. But then he chose to address a university audience rather than That's not true. address. <laughs> right, so, right. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a difficult one to kind of pin down because he does also talk about the language inventor as um, an artist in need of an audience. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yes, okay, it might be a bit strange, it might be a bit weird, but I need to share this. You know, it's good stuff. <laughs> I am sort of proud. <laughs> From a point onwards, it, I'm also proud of it, and I want to talk about it. Good point. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing I think uh, 
is sort of in the in the introduction that you sort of outlined was these uh, we've sort of alluded to it already, but these four key characteristics uh, that Tolkien identified for an ideal imaginary language. Do you want to mm-hmm. maybe talk a little bit about those and and maybe what was it about Tolkien that sort of what was it in his his background um, the 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 writers that he had read the the philosophers that he had read maybe that that sort of helped him hit upon these four characteristics as being so key. Well, I think you mentioned one already, and that was, you know, he looked at nomenclature that, you know, authors like Jonathan Swift and Lord Dunsany used, and he felt mm-hmm. that there wasn't a sense of consistency to the nomenclature, as, as he called it, coherence and consistency. Yeah. And he almost, what he did is he reverse engineered it by creating base roots that had a certain sound sense to them. So, for example, the base root more, M-O-R, more, from mm-hmm. which he would create words that all had those had associations. So you get Mordor and Moranon and things like that, all having that sense of darkness and blackness. So there's a consistency and a coherence to the nomenclature that mm-hmm. he felt also created that sense of historicity. So that hits two of those key characteristics, that idea of a sound sense mm-hmm. and that idea of a consistency yeah. um, as two of the characteristics. And I think... I think I think readers get that also from from words just like the example um, um, Andy just gave, or words like um, Gondor and Argonath. They both mm-hmm. have the word rock or stone in them. Yeah. Gond, you know that, that right. element. I think even even if you don't realise it, you start getting a sense of related words, of words that are not just randomly made up, but they mm-hmm. you know they belong to families of words, just like you know in real languages. That's true. Even mm-hmm. if you don't decode so- them or figure them out, you understand that there is a commonality. And that sure. does lend towards that that internal consistency that, uh, you know, he talked about like in On Fairy Stories where he, he talks about that need for an internal consistency. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you start to see that all the... Yeah. What's yeah. really yeah. funny to me is that we talk about Tolkien as writing fantasy, but actually he's much closer to realism than <laughs> realists, really. So this illusion of reality, this, this illusion in which a language seems, you know, exactly like it would work in reality is mm-hmm. quite remarkable. It really mm-hmm. is, you're right. Mm-hmm. And, the detail, and, that, and the detail that he used in the development of those, I mean, you just, there's two um, Tolkien specialist journals that all of Tolkien's language papers are being published by, by the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship, Binyar Tangwar and Parma Elder Lambaran. And if you go just go through one of those Parma Elder Lambarans and just look at the grammatical detail he, he wrote for once, you know, for the, I don't know, the Quenya verb of the 1940s, there's more detail into that than there is in a real language, basically, because <laughs> he was coming at it from a philological point yeah. of view, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and he always came at these things from the perspective of discovering them, didn't he, uh, as opposed to really creating them. And uh, I think there's uh, something you said a moment ago, Andy, reminded me of something from uh, from I think it's from uh, volume five of History of Middle Earth, uh, which has the etymologies in it. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's this uh, passage that Christopher Tolkien writes about how, um, you know, he would uh, sort of create this root and then the word would then exist for him. Yeah. Um, and and that that almost reminds me of, um, you know, things like th- this idea of discovering the Red Book of Westmarch, even the idea of discovering the Fonwegian language, mm-hmm. um, that, that sort of lent all of his creations a sort of additional air of, of reality. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, invention is that idea of coming upon finding, you know, and I think that, that was for Tolkien what invention was in a way. It was that 
coming upon and finding these things yeah. he said at one point these things came into my mind as connected things already you know these mm -hmm. stories and everything so yeah but yeah, coming yeah. back, if I may, just for a second to those four rules and sort of closing the loop about that question, I suppose, I think that Andy's right. In a way, he's starting, you know, developing those rules, although you know, I don't, I'm not sure he was thinking about them as rules until, you know, later, uh, um, because he sees the problems, you know, he he can see what, what he considers problems in other language inventors. But also at that point, he's already invented quite a lot. You know, he's had a lot of trial and error. He's worked out a lot of things within his own language creation, I think. So when a secret vice is written, he's had quite a few years of playing that game for a while. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's it, it out of his own practice as well. And what you observe out of a you know good body of work that's already accumulating he talks about uh drawers and drawers of uh of papers <laughs> right remember that, yeah. she would have had at that point definitely yeah going oh, all certainly. the way back to 1916 yeah exactly yep. mm -hmm. right great well I do uh, I do want to make sure we spend some time talking about the essay on phonetic symbolism since Dimitri you said that was one of your babies um, yes. and and that was uh, really a fascinating read for me as somebody with just enough linguistic knowledge to be dangerous um, you've uh, you've presented that uh, really well with a, with a really good context of you know some of those who came before Tolkien uh, names like Sapir and Jesperson um, who I personally have not read but I guess, for those of us who haven't read some of those uh, sort of predecessors, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this concept of is it phonetic symbolism or sound symbolism? Oh, there are there's a, a huge number of different terms, you know, depending on whether you are an English speaking um, um, linguist or a um, sort of continental linguist. You know, the the um, the French tend to use a completely different term, the Germans another. So, you know, I don't think there's a, a sort of agreed term, but mm -hmm. sound symbolism or phonetic symbolist, symbolism in English speaking sort of scholarship tend to be the two, the two main ones. I mean, the, the, the very sort of basic idea there is that there is a one-to-one correspondence, or there is a natural inherent reason why something is called what it's called. So there's a relationship between um, an object and the name we give that object, and that is a natural relationship. It, it just um, it, it, it the, the name the name fits the thing naturally. Uh, mm -hmm. Now that flies completely in the face of uh, modern linguistics, uh, Saussurean linguistics. This idea that uh, language is a social construction. You know, we call this thing a table because we've all agreed we're going to call it a table. There is no good reason why it's called a table and not something else. Uh, but sound symbolism is the complete opposite idea. It's the idea that actually no, there is a good reason it's called a table because that is the right name for it. <laughs> so, um, of course, this is, you know, kind of simplifying it to the point of, um, you know, where, where it just um, becomes slightly silly, really, because it, it, there are variations on all of this, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what Tolkien is at pains to, to, to um, underline there in that particular essay is that, of course, language has a history and you know, language, uh, language develops. So even if there was one point at some point, you know, in the beginnings of language where there might have been, you know, this fitness between name and an object um, that won't exist anymore now, even if we, you know, hypothetically agree. And he's pondering all sorts of ideas there. But what is fascinating to me is that he's still happy to sort of say towards the end that, yeah, he thinks it, it exists or existed, you know, at some point, mm. um, which is, you know, would be anathema to a lot of a lot of linguists today. It's something mm. that, uh, you know, after Saussure, it's just, a, just a sort of gone out the window, really, apart from a, a, a small number of people who are interested in um, um, things like advertising, interestingly enough, you know, sort of mm. finding the right mm. product name or... 
particular sound changes or sound shifts. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not gone completely as an idea from linguistics, but it is quite obs- well, quite quite controversial, quite obscure, not accepted, you know, as mm-hmm. as a definitely existing. To me, what's completely um, um, revolutionary in that essay is that he Tolkien seems to me to argue that sound laws, you know, those very, very established things from philology, you know, that everybody accepts, you know, languages, languages change by specific and systematic sound laws. He seems to be saying that sound, sound laws might be affected by fitness, you know, by something working better. And then he's got the elves, you know, doing the same thing. The, the mm-hmm. elves keep developing languages so that they sound better, so that the words fit better things. You know, they are artists, really. And he talks about sort of individual language creators as artists. You so kind of describe the Noldor as the ultimate linguist, I think, in one of your right. notes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So all of this then becomes, you know, part of the, the arsenal of linguistic theories in the legendarium itself. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that played out in the, the in the difference between the way an elvish phrase like I lari lanti lasi surinin sounds as opposed to ash nas debatical, ash nas gimbal, you know. <laughs> right. Even if you don't know what either of those things mean, the way they sound gives you a certain sense of the people that speak them. Absolutely. Right. What, one sounds like a being of light and one sounds like uh, an orc yeah. or dark lord <laughs> wrote it. Yeah. I'm going to have to put my hand up here and disagree a little oh. bit, just a little bit. And that's, again, something I sort of explored in, in my first book. I don't I'm not I'm not saying that this doesn't doesn't quite work, but it works mainly for sort of Western European language speakers. Mm, that's and, a fair and point. That's a very fair point. Yeah. That's got to do with familiarity, really, doesn't it? Because, you know, yeah. the, the particular sort of guttural um, 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 sounds and consonants of the black speech would be actually quite familiar to speakers of other languages. So it wouldn't okay. necessarily have these connotations. Um, but yeah, that's another big another big discussion that, you know, <laughs> maybe for another day. Well, but thank you for pointing it out because you're absolutely right. I mean, we're we're coming to it from that perspective and it's hard for us to kind of set that aside on the shelf and, and look mm-hmm. at this from some sort of perspective that's, you know, either other or if something existed like this, but truly a neutral perspective. I don't think that can be. But, um, you know, this idea that for us, that's how it comes across. But you're right. You're, you know, and thank you for pointing that out. I think mm-hmm. uh, certainly our, we do have a lot of listeners around the world, and many of them have corrected us on other linguistic issues <laughs> yes, related to what, like Hebrew and some others yeah. uh, that we've had. And, and um, uh, you know, I'm sure that they would they would certainly echo your your sentiment on that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, de- definitely. Thank you for that. And um, and that's that. I guess that sort of takes me to this other question I had about this concept of phonetic predilection. Um, which uh, is another thing that I think Tolkien speaks about in that essay. And um, I actually have uh, attempted to introduce this idea on the podcast, I think in our last episode, was it, Alan? Which mm-hmm. hasn't aired yet, but we right. recorded it already. Um, but we were talking about the, um, the the part of the Silmarillion, it's in chapter 10, where uh, Tolkien tells us that the elves couldn't master the Dwarvish language, Kuzdul, because it was cumbrous and unlovely. <laughs> um, and, and that sort of put me in mind of, uh, of, of your book and this idea of, you know, phonetic predilection, you know, there's a reason that English sounds like English, Welsh sounds like Welsh. Um, and uh, and so, you know, to take that to the legendarium, Elvish sounds like Elvish and Dwarvish sounds like Dwarvish. 
<laughs> but uh, I'm not sure I have a question there. I just, one observation. It's a complicated yeah. theory, and, it, and he's only just about touching upon it in in uh, in this essay. It, the, the 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 bigger argument really about all this comes in English and Welsh, um, which is uh, um, another essay that I'm sure has got a lot of extra stuff. You know that that that. Uh, um, you know, are somewhere out there to be studied at some point. But he, he kept on thinking about uh, the phonetic predilections. And, and he also linked that with um, language aesthetics, with what sort of languages we find pleasant and what mm. we, you know, which ones we don't. And as I said, th this is a, a huge sort of field of study, really, about uh, language preferences, which is a, a, a yeah. Probably another podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> probably, which is something else he builds into the legendarium as well, too. Especially in some of the later essays, um, the sayings of Dangwith Pengaloth, for example, he talks a lot about that idea of, of linguistic predilection. Mm -hmm. We'll have to take a look. I have those. to go back and reread re re that. But you're right; that probably is another podcast. So we'll uh, yeah. we'll, we'll wrap <laughs> we'll it up with that. we'll wrap it up with one last question here. Um, since we <clears> were running short on time, we want to first of all thank you for taking that much time with us. But uh, there is a great Terry Pratchett quote you included in the coda. And I love this: Tolkien appears in the fantasy universe in the same way that Mount Fuji appeared in old Japanese prints, sometimes small in the distance, and sometimes big and close to, and sometimes not there at all. And that's because the artist is standing on Mount Fuji. Uh, <laughs> it seems clear that Tolkien inspired future generations of writers to create these languages for their fictional worlds. And you mentioned uh, Klingon, uh, Dothraki, uh, Le Guin's Kesh, and, and I think you alluded even to some others. But I, and I know we, this is speculation again, but it's a, 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 an interesting speculation. What would the modern fantasy and sci-fi landscape be without his linguistic influence? Let's say he didn't. He didn't write this. Let's say he stuck with his job as a college professor of philology and we never got the legendarium. What would the modern world be like in terms of fantasy sci-fi? I don't think we'd have fantasy as we know it. I, I just, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I mean, there was fantasy before before Tolkien. You know, it, it, it's uh, that's pretty straightforward. You know, there were yeah. people like George MacDonald and William Morris and, you know, all sorts of uh, all sorts of other sort of Victorian writers. And, of right. course, writers in the 20s and 30s, you know, just before. But... He just, um, you know, he made fantasy marketable and recognizable as a genre in a way that mm. it hadn't been done before. And it sort of takes off after this. And, the, and that particular brand of fantasy as well, because, of course, there are other subcategories like intrusion fantasy, where, you know, you set it in this world. Uh, but, um, you know, all sorts of supernatural stuff happen around you. Mm. Uh, his brand of fantasy, the inventing a whole world fantasy took yeah. off in a way that mm. had never been before. I think we just would would be in a completely different world. It's, 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 it's very difficult to imagine um, what it would be. And I think with invented languages, he was one of the I think he was the first, arguably, to really interlink the invented language into the text. You know, before mm -hmm. Tolkien, yes, we do have examples of grammars and invented languages, but they're not integrated into the fabric of the narrative. So when that first Fellowship of the Ring came out and someone saw in the Crick Hollow encounter the first lines of Elvish, let's say, or something, mm. they saw mm -hmm. it within the context of the narrative, basically. It, it was True. part of the narrative. Right. And I think that's where the influence has been in the and fact it's that it's not... It's like it as well many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
it, it wasn't this separate thing that was reported as a report of some traveler's tale. It was part mm-hmm. of the narrative. And True. also, as people read through the volumes, they, Tolkien would often write in Elvish and then translate it into English. So we, he was inviting readers who were interested to engage with that language and learn about it, basically. Yeah. And that, of course, is what where you had all the people, you know, starting to speak Elvish and setting up all kinds of user groups and stuff like that. So True. I think without that, we, we, I mean, it's interesting. There was one other writer who was doing something similar to what Tolkien was doing on the other side of the Atlantic at almost the same time, which is Austin Tappan writes Islandia, where this guy invented a whole world and invented languages and things like that. And someone asked Tolkien in the fifties, if he knew of Islandia, and he said, no, he didn't. So there was someone else doing something very huh. similar, but that wasn't a fantasy work. That was more of a, almost a social history of an invented world. Um, So I think without Tolkien, it would have taken someone else like a Tolkien to put that invented language on the stage like that. And who knows how long before that person would have come along. That's true. Yeah. It's amazing how many things are really impacted by that. I mean, you talk about Mm -hmm. fantasy and you talk about sci-fi and, and then, you know, that going to, that's going to flow over into what we see in television with the same genres. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're absolutely right. Without that depth, uh, it would have taken somebody else, and obviously we don't know. You know, that's that's a kind of speculation we can't even engage in. But uh, it certainly is interesting. But we mm-hmm. uh, we want to thank you for the time you've given us. We want this does wrap it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Uh, Demetra and Andy, we again thank you for joining us. We loved having you. Um, oh, and, our pleasure. And, Thanks for having us. Oh, thank, thank you, you very much for coming. Truly, our pleasure. And for those of you listening, thank you for joining us. And join us again in one week when we go back to our read-through of The Silmarillion with Chapter 12 of Men. We're going to be going back to Middle-earth again to see our ancestors finally awaken with the rising of the sun. It's a short chapter, uh, so we'll probably get to spend some time revisiting the differences between elves and men, and just what it all means now that men are on the scene. And I have a feeling we'll probably be delving into the history of Middle-earth again. (laughs) Gee, you think? (laughs) Uh, As always, if you need cheap paperbacks to mark up, please use the links on our library page at theprancingponypodcast.com. We also have some links to audiobooks, music CDs, and some other cool things for your Tolkien collection. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. We would love to have your iTunes reviews. We need those iTunes reviews. So please leave one if you haven't already, and we greatly appreciate your support. We're also on Stitcher and TuneIn. And thanks to those of you who have visited us on social media. We have a common room, just like the real Prancing Pony Inn, and you can find it on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast or on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And social media is a great place to share our podcast as well. So please continue to retweet us and share us. Uh, it might be the way you get that one friend who's afraid of the Silmarillion to finally read it because they'll have us <laughs> talking them through it. Well, one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or your Klingon translation of the Silmarillion to the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll try to get them into our next episode. Well, a little over an hour, still far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs>